<coughs> this is the second day of this July 2021 seven-day session. And we'll resume reading from our text from yesterday, the teachings of the 20th century Korean Zen master Kusan Sunim. The name of the book is The Way of Korean Zen, translated by Martina Batchelor. The name uh, shown here is uh, Mar- Martina Fage, uh, but then later she married Stephen Batchelor. <coughs> She was uh, Martine Bachelor when I met her. <coughs> we left off yesterday <coughs> uh, with uh, this um, enlightenment experience of Kusan. He was offering, uh, it was in the autobiographical uh, piece, or rather biographical, uh, and I, I just want to repeat the his, the verse he wrote, uh, you often ref- called a gata, G-A-T-H-A, uh, after that enlightenment. He said, look at the front of the mirror, it is completely dark. Look at the back and it is brilliantly clear. Just to pause there, uh, there's a saying in Zen, the great, great round mirror of wisdom is black as pitch. Looking at the front, it is not the front. Looking at the back, it is also not the back. When both front and back are shattered, form and emptiness, the world of the absolute, the world of relative, the world of differentiation, the world of non-differentiation, when these two are shattered as a, as a dichotomy, then truly one has a great complete mirror. <clears throat> I'm going to just uh, hit some highlights here uh, from the rest of the biographical piece. He still felt that his practice of meditation needed to be deepened. There's great tribute to his, the the depth of faith in this essential nature that even after this enlightenment experience, he was, he, he knew there was further to go. He had to keep going. <clears throat> Therefore, he resigned his posts at a, he had accepted some administrative uh, positions in, in the uh, larger national Buddhist order. He uh, resigned from his posts and went to a small hermitage. After meditating there for three years, he underwent another awakening. Upon reporting this to Master Hyo Bong, he received Dharma transmission. At that time, he composed these lines. Okay, another, another verse. 
penetrating deep into a pore of Samantabhadra. Samantabhadra is the bodhisattva of action. Penetrating deep into a pore of Samantabhadra, Manjusri is seized and defeated. Now the great earth is quiet. It is hot on the day of the winter equinox. Pine trees are of themselves green. A stone man riding on a crane passes over the blue mountains. Without getting into explaining too much about this, um, let's just sort of appreciate these last two lines. It is hot on the day of the winter equinox. Wait a minute, what does he mean? Winter equinox is here in our in our hemisphere. Uh, it's uh, the northern hemisphere. It's late December. What does he mean it's hot on the winter equinox? Does he mean a, a stone man riding on a crane passes over the Blue Mountains? <coughs> pointing to the the incomprehensible nature of this prajna wisdom beyond anything that is makes sense logically certainly far beyond the limits of our rational mind Looking at the front, it is not the front. Looking at the back, it is also not the back. What is, is not. What is not, is. There's another uh, famous Zen saying, on top of a flagpole, a cow gives birth to a calf. These are not just nonsense verses, random word salad that, that happens to pop into their mind. This is pointing to this essential wisdom of ours. This beyond anything we can, we can apprehend through our ordinary mind. <clears throat> and then at that Master Hyobong said, Until now you have been following me, now it is I who should follow you. So at his teacher's request, Kusan came out of his retreat and the, accepted the position of abbot at such and such monastery where Hyobong uh, had been currently the, the abbot. He remained there for four years, and then it gets into describing some travel that Kusan went to around the world, making giving talks. Um, Not long after his return, uh, Master Hyobong passed away in the meditation posture. Shortly before he died, he, he uttered his final nirvana poem 
And this is where these were his final words. All my words of Dharma were superfluous. You ask me about today's matter, I tell you that the moon is shining over a thousand rivers. <clears throat> and then uh, Kusan Sunim moved to this big monastery complex, the most famous in Korea, Songgwangsa. We we read from that yesterday, read description of it, became the abbot there. He uh and at the uh at the inauguration of the new meditation hall, he uh encouraged his monks uh, with these words. He said, in practicing meditation, you should be prepared to grab hold of the blade of a sword so sharp that it cuts through hairs merely blown against it. You have to be prepared to seize it by the blade. Could you possibly do that in your ordinary frame of mind? As long as you are afraid of the sharpness of the blade, you are bound to cut yourself. But in firmly gripping the blade with an utterly intrepid mind, you will not even be scratched. In Sashin, people sometimes are afraid that if they stay up late at night, then they'll be tired the next day. Well, duh, of course you'll be tired the next day. It's pretty much the whole flavor of Sashin is, is being tired. But who wants to be dominated by their fears of what might happen? Same thing with uh, food. Well, if I don't eat as much as I normally do, um, then... Something might happen. Who knows what that could be. To the, to the mind that is not ready to really commit to this practice, you can find all kinds of things to, uh, as excuses to uh, stop short of making your best effort. And that is not, I don't mean to say that that's somehow, it disqualifies anyone. This is, this is probably the normal course of things where, uh, it takes a while, for most of us, it takes a while to develop this desperation and coupled with faith that is, it takes to break through this ordinary consciousness to see beyond beyond gate gate para gate para sam gate
just a little bit more left here. Um, he would continue in his <clears throat> uh, later years to work tirelessly to develop the training, the Zen training facilities at Song Guangsa. In spite of his old his his age and other responsibilities, he would always participate in any manual work in which the other monks were engaged. You know, he may have he may have uh, felt about that group group manual work the same way I do, which is it's fun. It's fun to work with other people. As a, as a whole gang, a whole whole group of people, the way we do with the, uh, the late June uh, Chapin Mill work retreat every year. Something that for some of us is exhilarating, a lot of us, because it's a, it's a popular thing here, this work retreat every year. <clears throat> it's not just because of the donuts that are served in the morning either. During his later years, the wrathful demeanor for which he was noted earlier in his life gave way to a kind and compassionate nature that always seemed to have room for any monk or layperson who was in need of his advice. Well, this is, this is a natural um, evolution, um, not just in those advanced in spiritual practice, but uh, it, it seems to be pretty common generally with um, especially angry men who then will sometimes, often uh, mellow with age. And then in uh, 1983, he started to show signs of serious illness. Uh, and then the f- one day he gathered his disciples in his room and indicated that he would not live for much longer. And then from that point on, his health deteriorated further. He confined himself to his quarters. <coughs> and then he passed away in the meditation posture at the age of 74. Three days before he died, he uttered his final words, Samsara and Nirvana are originally not two. As the sun rises in the sky, it illuminates the 3,000 worlds. His teacher, Ho Bong, remember, his final line was, I tell you that the moon is shining over a thousand rivers. The moon of mind, the moon of our original nature is shining over people everywhere. Dogs and cats and cockroaches and swallows, trees and cars.
His body was cremated in a small field behind the monastery. His bones were ground to powder and scattered near the site of his old hermitage at the foot of Mount Choge. <clears throat> and now we'll uh, move into uh, this chapter called Instructions for Meditation. It uh, opens up with a, the, the verse not not attributed to him. Um, winding back and forth among green trees, the golden shuttle of the oriole weaves silk the color of spring. A monk sits dozing, even the stones smile. And then here he uh, offers teaching on koan meditation. He begins, A human being is composed of a body and a mind. A body without a mind is just a corpse. A mind without a body is just pure spirit. Human beings are said to be superior to all other creatures. But how can a human being be considered superior if he knows his body but is ignorant of the nature of his mind? One who knows the body but not the mind is an incomplete person. You know, you could you could change you could change here body to body mind, <clears throat> and then in contrast to our original mind. Let's plug that in. How can a human being can? Cons- how can a human being be considered superior if she knows her body mind, her mind body, but is ignorant of the nature of their true mind? One who knows the body mind but not the true mind is an incomplete person. I would have to say we can spend years in psychotherapy and with great benefit and come to understand our various um, neuroses, our complexes, and so forth, and as a result, uh, get a real renewal in our life and and be able to work and love, as Freud put it, uh, be able to work with others and our own and love others, uh, more fully, but seeing the various features of our personality and character and coming coming to terms with them, integrating the self, small s self, as as valuable a thing as it is, it's not the same as seeing 
this true self that is no self. However, if a human being searches for the mind, true mind, and awakens to it, she will realize completeness, for at that time she will know both the body, the, both the body-mind and the true mind. What's uh, the great thing about this practice is that in in addressing this matter of our true mind through the koan or the breath in other words by even by not dwelling on these different features of the body mind uh, but rather keeping the focus on what is beyond it the breath or the koan we come to have a greater understanding of those very aspects of ourselves that constitute what we normally think of as the self, the body-mind, self. This is what uh, what anyone will experience uh, outside Sashin. It's more it's more um, apparent in Sashin because we're just doing so much sitting. But we, uh, just in holding to only move, not going back and tracing our problems from our parents or siblings or, or any of that, but just move. We, these things are seen, these different aspects of ourselves. They, they arise, they come up to consciousness, and we, we see them in a new way. In other words, we, come to greater self-understanding, small s self-understanding, while only addressing the practice, the strictly the practice we're working on, the koan or the breath, shikantaza. It's it's Zazen is non-analytical. Rather than figuring out some some difficult um, problem we have in relating to others and ourselves, rather than figuring it out through analysis, uh, we come to understand it in a way. But we, it's like we get underneath it. We get a new perspective on it. Um, we see it for what it is. And in, that, in doing that, uh, we become more integrated and more able to, uh, able to function more effectively in relationships and, and other, other aspects of our lives. It's a package deal. We get the whole thing when we, when we do are doing zazen, especially in sashin. We get the insights into our issues.
that uh, bedevil us. And the insight is, is most of the way toward resolving it. goes on, upon awakening, this world becomes a pure land. Uh, pure land, capitalized. Uh, this is a, a major uh, Buddhist sect. It's, it's the, the most popular, it's the most, most numerous Buddhist, number of Buddhist practitioners in Japan are those of the pure land school. Um, the idea is that uh, if the practice is uh, this kind of mantra um, invoking the the name of Avalokitesvara, excuse me, of Avalokita Buddha, uh, and uh, and in doing so, I know more than just. In doing this practice as a as a practice, like a koan practice, but just in in uh, honoring this Namu Amida Butsu, Namu Amida Butsu, the name of Amida Buddha, then uh, the idea is <laughs> the idea is that then we can be reborn in the Western Paradise, the Pure Land. So he's he's saying, okay. Um, Upon awakening, the, this world becomes a pure land. Forget about the next world, next lifetime. This uh, phrase, when he says, upon awakening, the world becomes a pure land, uh, reminded me of what we read yesterday, um, where uh, as, a, as a young monk, uh, he said, I thought that through meditation I would be able to free myself from birth and death and gain the power to transform this world into a Buddha realm. Same thing. The world becomes a pure land. He says, but as long as you are only concerned with the body and enslaved by the environment, this world will remain as a defiled realm. a <clears throat> saying I picked up somewhere um, some Buddhist source if you're still looking for that one person who will change your life look in the mirror he continues the ultimate purpose of practicing Zen meditation is to awaken to the mind. The surest way to do this is through direct inquiry into a koan. 
An example of a koan would be a question such as, what is this? Or what is this mind? What you are searching for can be called by many different names, mind, spirit, soul, true nature, and so forth. But such designations are merely labels. You should put aside all of these names and reflect on the fact that the true master of the body-mind is more than just the label mind. The master of the body-mind is not Buddha, for it is not yet awakened. Nor is it anything material, because it cannot be physically given away or received. Nor is it simply empty space, for empty space cannot pose questions or have knowledge of good and evil. Hence there is a master who rules this body who is neither the label mind, the Buddha, a material thing, or empty space. Having negated these four possibilities, a question will arise as to what this master really is. Notice he says what this master really is, not who, because we can be sure it's not a person. If you continue inquiring in this way, the questioning will become more intense. Finally, when the mass of questioning enlarges to a critical point, it will suddenly burst. The entire universe will be shattered, and only your original nature will appear before you. The uh, the great Japanese Zen master Basui had a natural koan, natural question, who is the master? What is the original self? What was my face before my parents gave birth to me? They're all pointing to this. The, uh, <clears throat> the genius of questioning, and therefore of working on a koan, is that questioning empties the mind of unnecessary ideas, concepts, attachments, mental attachments. Questioning is an emptying. Wondering is an emptying. And awakening arises from an empty mind, a mind of no thought. We can't hold on to our ideas, our notions, our concepts, our mental attachments. We can't hold on to them and question at the same time. Or... Rather, to the degree that we're questioning, we will be freed of these mental attachments.
continues, it is most important to continuously investigate the koan with unswerving determination. At the beginning, you might feel as though you are trying to lift a heavy bucket full of water with a weak arm. This, uh, I think, is the common, the common experience early in Sashin, where we seem to be um, working against this, this fire hose of thoughts, and we can feel so ineffectual in our practice. But that's, that's it. That's how it starts. You must not be discouraged by that. It changes as the days go by. Sitting 10 or 12 or more hours a day changes us, changes the practice. We get lighter. Get lighter because we stop thinking about ourselves all the time. says you should never relax your effort. Let me talk about effort, because this is a stumbling block, or at least a question a lot of people have posed to me and to themselves. How do you, how do you, what does that mean? What is, what is true effort if you're not, if you don't have a goal in your mind? If you're not grasping at something. I've never found a way to explain it. And no one needs it explained. If you've got the determination to stick with this practice because you'll find your way to it. You'll find your way to an effort that is a non-grasping, non-self-conscious effort. An effortless effort. Effort doesn't mean straining with the body. doesn't mean straining with a mind, although it does mean applying oneself fully to it. If we can relax the body, if we can be, if we can, which means if we can notice when we are getting tense in the body and correct, relax, then the effort will be more effective. It will be lead us to this effortless effort. But certainly the mind has to be fully engaged. You can't just go off and dwell in random thoughts. You have to, here's another way to understand effort. It's, it's returning, being willing to let go of thoughts when we notice that the mind has wandered to let go of him and get back to the practice, the breath of the koan. The willingness to do it right away. Because 
when you notice yourself, your mind having wandered, there can be the temptation to just, I just want to finish up this thought. Just let me just, let me just stick with this a little bit longer. I'll get back to it. I'll get back to it. But right now, let's just finish up this thought. I'm, I'm, I got something good happening here. I'm just going to um, just stay with it. No, nothing, nothing really good is going to come from that. It could be pleasant following our thoughts. There's something that can be pleasant. But it won't lead to this breakthrough. We have to get sick of our thoughts. These thoughts that we're addicted to. I think in in common usage, the word addiction is usually associated with drugs and alcohol. Um, Maybe cigarettes, video games, or pornography. But really, the the ultimate addiction may be addiction to our thoughts. The strongest addiction. But it's one that we can wean ourselves from. But it takes persistence. It takes this faith that there's nothing for us in our thoughts. There's nothing in in any ultimate way. They're They're no friend to us. Even in terms of physical pain, if you want less physical, let's just keep it out of the physical. If you want less physical pain this week, then don't dwell in your thoughts. Trust the practice you're working on and just that. In fact, that for a lot of us, that's what finally gets us to um, tear ourselves away from our thoughts is to the physical pain because what we discover is that the way through the pain is through complete concentration on the koan or the breath. And there are people who will who will stubbornly refuse to do that. They keep strategizing in their mind, thinking about this, thinking about that, sitting in their pain. It's not going to work in any any real final way the way is to become so absorbed so deeply concentrated in your practice that the pain recedes it 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 moves off to the margin of the mind it may still be there the experience of pain but it's not the same And even even for periods of time, it can vanish completely. You can go from extreme pain to no pain, just like that. If you're not thinking about the pain, because thinking about the pain really means thinking about yourself. Zen Master said, just give up this 
small mind called self and there's nothing in the world that can hinder you. So effort. We make the effort. It's, it's impure for a while because it's, it's stained by grasping, by self-interest. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. i got to do this in order to, in order to. But then it purifies itself through ongoing sitting. And then he continues, no matter what what you are doing, be solely concerned with nothing but the koan. And then he offers an analogy. If a clock were unreliable and kept stopping, uh, you would either have it repaired or get rid of it. Similarly, when practicing meditation, you must exert continuous effort and not allow yourself to be lazy. Here, too, I'm going to draw from my Doksan experience over the years, and I can hear people saying uh, they're, they're, they become discouraged because they can't, uh, they can't keep it continuous. Well, who can, in the strictest sense? So we keep finding ourselves having strayed in our mind, and then when we do, we just go back to the practice. He doesn't say you must exert, you must have con- continuous success. It's just that you must keep trying. Exert continuous effort, the effort. Not whatever you may think success is. That's it. It's just the the dogged returning to the practice every three seconds, two seconds. Let's make it one second. Every second you notice the mind having stray. It's all right. Just get back. Just get back to the practice. It's all. It's always there. It's always waiting for us. This practice. It's just right there at rest, waiting for us to redirect pivot back to the koan or to the breath. It's simple, a simple two-step practice. First, noticing. That's the mindfulness part of it, noticing when the mind is wandered, and then just pivoting back, redirecting to the practice. And repeat. He continues, in koan meditation, the key factor is to maintain a constant sense of questioning. So having taken hold of the koan, what is this? This, by the way, um, it seems to be the, the most popular, the most widely assigned koan in Korean Zen. Is not, not mu, but what is this? Having taken hold of the koan, what is this? Try to always sustain the questioning. What is seeing? 
what is hearing, what is moving these hands and feet, and so on. In other words, always referring it back to the subject, not what is this bookmark or what is uh, those cattails on the on the altar, but what is seeing the cattails. What is feeling the breeze from the fans? The subject, subject. And he goes on, before the initial sense of questioning fades, it is important to give rise to the question again. in this way, the process of questioning can continue uninterrupted with each new question overlapping the previous one. Um, this is sometimes called the bamboo method, where you've got the question, okay, you've got it, you've got it, it's alive, it's sincere, and then before you run out of breath or before you get to the end of that, you pick it up again, you resume, you, it overlaps. In addition, you should try to make this overlapping smooth and regular. But this does not mean that you should just mechanically repeat the question as though it were a mantra. It is useless to just say to yourself day and night, what is this, 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 what is this. The key is to sustain sustain the sense of questioning, not the repetition of the words. In other words, the words are there just to get us deeper into the questioning, to keep the questioning alive. Once this inquiry gets underway, there will be no room for boredom. This is an important point, because boredom is one of many challenges we encounter, especially if we're sitting day and night, there will be periods of boredom, which tells us that we're not engaged enough with it. We're, we're letting the mind wander. We're spending too much time in our thoughts if we're bored. It's great that way. It's great, uh, it's great biofeedback or cognitive feedback when if you notice you're bored then you're on the surface you got to get into it more thoroughly if the mind remains quiet the koan will not be forgotten and the sense of questioning will continue unbroken in this way awakening will be easy Our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.